desert and I'm longing for my home. All my dreams have gone astray. When I'm stranded in the valley and I'm tired and all alone, seems like I've lost my way. I go running to your mountain. strong tower, a shelter over me, beautiful and mighty, everlasting King. You are my strong tower, a fortress when I'm weak, your name is true and holy, and your face is all I of all my fear You're my refuge and my hope When the storm of life is raging And the thunder's all I hear Speak softly to my soul Now I'm running to your mountain Where your mercy sets me free you are my strong tower, shelter over me, beautiful and mighty, everlasting King. You are my strong tower, fortress when I'm weak, your name is true and holy, and your face is A strong tower, a shelter of me, beautiful, mighty, everlasting king. You are my strong tower, fortress when I'm weak. Your name is true and holy, and your face is all I see. Thank you, Seth. Did your um, mother make it home from Ecuador? Yeah. Their home. Through the earthquake and the flood, they were in Ecuador. His mother with a medical team. They what? And a still small voice, too. Earthquake, floods, and a still small voice. Okay. Good. Got to have the whole package there. But they made it home. Good. Join me in prayer. Father, we just lift up these that are in need of your special care today. Uh, we know you are a caring God every day, but we're gathered here in Jesus' name, and one of the things that we have a promise about is that you will act when we lift these things up to you in this context. And so we are lifting up these that we mentioned and others that we have maybe not talked about, that may be dealing with various stresses and needs today. We ask that you would be the great physician, the counselor, and the healer. In Jesus' name, amen. You have in your bulletin an insert which gives you an idea of what we'll be covering today. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to turn into any passages today if, uh, unless you want to follow along. The insert and the overhead will give you the text, the verses that we're dealing with. If you'll remember, we've been going through the Ten Commandments uh, and we are up to number nine. And so that gives you a clue to how many more there are in the series. 
And if you need to use your fingers to count or your toes too, that's okay. Because uh, uh, this is the one that says, and it says it right up there on the screen, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Now I use the older way, the King James Version of saying that, because I think it's something that has made its way into our culture and literature. Many of these Ten Commandments, by the way, um, have made their way into English literature, culture, and poetry. And uh, so some of the, the wordings from the old translations actually sort of resonate with things you may have heard or read or even titles of books. Uh, this would be one of them. And it's clear that the, on, at the face value of this commandment, the ninth of the Ten Commandments is bearing false witness against our neighbors is about honesty. That's the bigger picture. And we've been talking about this all through the Ten Commandments, that each one represents a category of life, character qualities, and a category of life in community. And the way we relate to God, the way we relate to other people, is governed by these as principles, not just technicalities. When it comes to law, we're kind of used to thinking of uh, technicalities. For example, if you get stopped going 35 uh, in a 35 zone or a 30 zone or 37 in a 35 zone, you've got some leeway to argue your case that this isn't truly breaking the law because it's only two miles an hour. And you can't really measure that accurately anyway. So when it comes to the law, we're kind of accustomed to thinking in terms of technicalities, which I think you have to do in civil law. But this is a foundational teaching that God was giving his people. You remember he started out by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and thou shalt have no other gods before me, number one. In other words, this is about how to live as God's people in the world, these standards. Now, it isn't always the most practical subjects to talk about because, um, well, they just seem like abstract issues sometimes. But I don't think honesty and living honestly is an abstract issue. I think every society has to struggle with this, what sort of character it has. One of the characteristics of societies like ours that are built on the Judeo-Christian background is that honesty and integrity are considered virtues, not deceptions or trickeries or um, anything along that line. Uh, we have a problem with this sometimes with our politicians. We get so used to them lying that it's hard to take them seriously, especially when they're running for office. And the best way to know really isn't by what any of them say, by, but why, by what you know about their character in general and what you know about their backgrounds. I think it is our business about how people in public office live in their private lives. It is because that's what tells you what's really going to happen, not just what they say when they're campaigning for votes. I think this year especially, it's um, every so often, every generation or so, actually every generation specifically, precisely, um, American voters kind of go through this process of a whole new generation discovering how this works. So you get people who haven't really been involved. I remember this from when I was uh, younger, and I 
you know, back then sometime, uh, that, that people my age were getting involved in politics for the first time. And, and politicians were capable of having great impact, not because of what they'd done or what they would do, but because of how they were able to communicate their ideas. And people with, uh, I would have to say, a little naive, and naivete is a good thing, uh, especially with young people. It's possible to get a little too cynical when I hear the candidate speaking, for example, on either the right or the left, I'm mostly inclined to laugh. I, some people, they get real frightened or they get real uh, adoring. Uh, I sit there and laugh, partly because I've been through enough of these to know that whatever they say is targeting an audience that they're pretty sure will give them a vote and a ticket to power. Now, that's the way the system works. But a lot of systems work that way. If I say, use the expression, used car salesman, what do you think? Well, you know that when you go on a car lot, the guy that's going to sell you a car has a number one ambition and a number two ambition. And maybe down the line is a number three and a number four ambition. But number one is to sell the car. And he's going to say what needs to be said to sell the car. I, I'm horrible at selling cars. I've sold quite a few in my life. I think we're on about our 30th car and in our life together, or at least my life. Um, so I've sold that many too, just about. But I've, I'm not good at it. I'm not good at it partly because when they come and look at it and drive it, I have this irresistible urge to tell them everything that's wrong with it. And uh, actually, that doesn't always work to my disadvantage. Last time I sold a car, I sold my Jeep, and I advertised it on Craigslist for $3,000. And a young guy with a wife and two little kids came and drove it, and they loved it. And uh, I said, uh, $3,000. And he said, um, I'll make you an offer, $2,850. And I said, that's not how you're supposed to do it. You say 2500 And he said, okay, 2500 <laughs> And then I said, okay, I'll meet you in the middle, 2750 It's a deal. <laughs> and so I got less even than what he offered. But I felt good about it because that's what I thought was a good price, and that's what I wanted to get in the first place. Now, many years ago, um, a few decades ago, when I was a young man, even before Margie and I were married, uh, I got out of the service in uh, Colorado. And I was very determined. I was not going to work with my hands anymore. I'd been a farmer, a soldier, a truck driver. And I was going to get a job that used my brains and not my brawn. You gotta, when, you, when you say that, you've got to do a little calculating whether you actually got more brains than brawn, I guess. But... Um, so I answered an ad in the Denver Post about a sales job. And uh, this job had a week of training, selling carpet in homes. Now, I knew a lot about carpet. It lays on floors. And that's exactly what I knew about it. But it turned out they didn't want me to know anything about carpet. They wanted me to learn 
how to trick these people into buying in their home the most expensive carpet in the world and think they got a bargain doing it. So I had a week of training how to do that. I worked for that company for six weeks. Never sold one inch of carpet. Because every time I went into a home, they would ask me questions that I wasn't supposed to answer. I was supposed to turn them to the manual and just keep going through it till you got to the end. And then they would sucker into the sale. That was the plan anyway. But I never could resist answering their questions. And they'd say, oh man, that much? And I'd say, yeah, sorry to have to tell you. I'm not supposed to, but I'm telling you. And then they'd say, well, we're not buying, but you want a beer or a cup of coffee? And, and I'd say, yeah, that sounds good. Better than this. So that's six weeks. I never sold a bit. And then they sent a closer with me one time to teach me how. A closer is a guy who knows how to make a sale to the devil. He could sell snow to Eskimos. And this guy said, here's what you do. You go in that house... Do not even remember their names. Do not become personal. He's got $100 on his forehead, a $100 bill. And back today, that would be like a $500 bill or something. And that's your money. And you need to stick to the script and say exactly what you need to get that $100 bill off his forehead. That's yours. Just imagine that. And so I watched him do it. The guy lied through his teeth in every way you can imagine. But he made the sale, and it made me sick. And I quit the next day. And they said, well, truck driving, huh? Sounds like a safe job. I said, well, it might be safe, but it is honest, at least that. And when I first got saved, Margie and I were living in Reno, we got involved in a campus ministry. And we thought this would be a good way to share our faith. This campus ministry took us through a manual training. And they almost said word for word what the crooks in the carpet sales business told us. Don't get personal. Don't make friends. Take them through the program and get their signature on the end of the booklet. And that's all you're supposed to do. But if you become their friends... That'll really screw up your statistics. I just about converted back from Christianity. <laughs> that made me sick. But I've run into enough of that in the religion business to know that crookedness still exists even in the religion industry. That just making the sale or the convert is all we're interested in. Now, that is exactly the principle, the basis of a society that God wanted the Israelite people to not be like, where people could actually trust what their fellow Israelites said, and they wouldn't go to court against each other and lie, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, lie, cheat, and steal in the business world with their neighbor, which is the people they lived with. And that is what we should be striving for, don't you think? A good faith effort to be so honest that we have an impact on the world that is invisible but powerful in terms of integrity. So that when we say stuff about Jesus, about God, about his words, about his standards, his morality, when we say things like that, they know 
that they can trust us, that we're not just conning them out of their paychecks or conning them out of their tithe or whatever it is, like a lot of people assume that's all we're trying to do. So commandment number nine, Exodus 20, that's the one that's up there, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor or tell lies. So I got six verses here and some takeaways that come from other parts of the scripture that amplify this subject because it's a very small verse, just three words in the Hebrew. Burden of proof, number one. This comes from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, which really is a legal or a statute law exposition or amplification of this same principle. And there are several of them that occur in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Uh, Burden of proof. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is the legal way the Israelites were told by God to work this principle into their society, their court system, and their ways of operating. Now, you may be familiar with the Sixth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. No, you're familiar with the First Amendment. No, the Second Amendment, the one about guns. Uh, uh, The Fifth Amendment, the one that says you don't have to answer when... um, when their school teacher asks you what in the world you're trying to pull off. That's the, plead the fifth, that's the way to say it. Amendment 6 says this, In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. Which district shall have been previously ascertained by law and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, and to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his own defense. Now that's pretty cool. That is a very unique base or feature of our justice system. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. And it comes from the Judeo-Christian background of the people that wrote this stuff. And that's a great thing because this is a principle that's important for daily life. Jesus picked up on this in Matthew 18. If somebody sins against you, establish it by the mouth of two or three witnesses. And Paul talks about that. He writes this to Timothy. He said if somebody's going to accuse one of the leaders of the church of wrongdoing, you've got to have at least two or three witnesses. This can't be just gossip and slander used to tear down other people. That's crooked and it corrupts the whole system that you can't trust it. So the second one, amplifying the same principle, also Deuteronomy, the next few verses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. I love this perjury law of the Israelites. I think that would be so cool. If in our courts, if somebody is found lying, then whatever they were attempting to do through their lives was going to get done to them. Wow. That could be something. And this is a big problem in, say, divorce courts or custody suits and all kinds of things. Unfortunately, the first ones to go to jail would probably be the lawyers, but that, that would empty the courtroom in a hurry. But 
there is a problem of lawsuits. We live in a litigious society. If people use the courts or the court of public opinion, the court of slander and lies and gossip to try to harm other people, what their law required is that if they did that and it was found out and they were proven to be lying to get at somebody, whatever they were trying to accomplish with their lies was going to be done to them. I think that would be a powerful deterrent to a lot of stuff that goes on in our legal system in our country, but it's also a deterrent to a lot of stuff that goes on in general life, even church life, that when people try to harm others with gossip and slander, we should take action against them. Church discipline against slander and lies. What a cool thing. It has happened to try to shut somebody up from destroying other people's reputations. Uh, and that's what we should do because this is an immorality. According to Paul in Romans chapter 1, he lists it with a whole bunch of other immoralities, lying for the purpose of harming other people. The source, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise or not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot change it. Ah, two things here with Balaam and Balak's situation. Remember that? He was hired to curse the Israelites and he said, but God blessed them. There's nothing I can do. You think I want to get whacked? Because I do against God's will, God said, bless them. And God did bless them. And you want me to curse them? No way, that's going to make me the recipient of the curse you want me to put on them. He knows what this law in Deuteronomy said. And God doesn't lie. God character. It's called veracity if you want to use an official theological term for it. That God's character is such that he's honest and trustworthy. And when he promises something, pronounces a blessing or promise or makes a statement about morality and what's right and wrong and about what the future is holding, about judgment, when he says that, you know he's not making it up just to make a sale. You know that it's real because this is God and he doesn't say stuff just to get something he wants. He doesn't need to say things just to get something he wants. In fact, God is so honest that he even says things that people don't want to hear. You read some of these things in the Old Testament and you read some of the standards and the laws of God and the final judgment predictions. This is coming directly from God because not because God is mad, but because God is a truth speaker. And to withhold truth when it's needed is the same as lying, being dishonest. Giving out the information that keeps people from harming themselves. This is the burden that parents have with their old, own children, which their children don't often understand. That if they didn't tell their children what was going to happen to them if they did this, this, or this, then they would be withholding truth that they need to live successfully. And if they do that, that makes them dishonest. Because they have a truth that they do not give out. And it would be necessary for the people around them 
to know that stuff. And that's what God is like. That's why the Bible is so perfectly balanced with God's warnings and God's promises. The law and the grace. It's a beautifully balanced communication because God is simply telling the truth about life, about time, about history, and about our condition. And that's all he's doing. He's not making it up. It's not arbitrary. Well, so that's God, the invisible spiritual source. But there's another source out there. And this is Jesus talking in John 8, verse 48. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So there's a whole another force out there. The force of darkness, the force of dishonesty, the force of lies. Uh, and it's coming from a conscious source. That's why it's so creative. Because if it was impersonal and just a force, people could figure it out. And they could simply write a computer program that filters out all the crookedness. But because there is a conscious being behind it, the inventor of dishonesty and lies, Satan himself, you can't figure it out. That's why you've got to stay close to God. Because God, on the other hand, is light and truth. And that's the counterbalance to the dark and the dishonest. So there is another force out there, and he is working against the truth. Always will. Reputation for honesty. So this brings it down to us. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, to take this to the original application, if it was the Old Testament, this would be a reference to not swearing in court. You know, where you put your hand on the Bible, and you raise your right hand, and you say, I swear to tell the whole truth, to nothing, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. You don't really need to say that in court anymore. You have to affirm that you'll speak the truth. And you don't have to, in most cases, put your hand on a Bible either. But the point of it, representing again our cultural background here, is that the veracity of God and truth and the book that contains it is foundational to our whole understanding of where truth comes from. That it's not simply, well, this is in my own best interest, so I'm going to say, my truth. I love that expression. Well, that's your truth, and I've got my truth. I'd like you to tell that to the judge in court someday. I would love to see how that works. Or the policeman, when he stops you for going 60 in a 35. Well, that's your truth. I got my truth. Or when somebody tells you, don't jump off that building, you're going to get hurt. Well, that's your truth, not my truth. Uh, you, you might be a follower of Isaac Newton, but I'm a follower of Albert Einstein. So my question is, can I watch? This ought to be entertaining. Truth is truth. It's outside of us. It's one of the big problems we have in our society today in the failure to communicate. There's a whole bunch of people up there who have been told that however you feel about something is the truth. So anybody who disagrees with you is attacking you. Because they're not attacking your idea of truth. They're not attacking God. Or they're not attacking the Bible. Or not attacking anything objective. That would be like a discussion or a debate. They're attacking you. 
And there's a lot of people out there who have been told that however you feel about things is the truth. So whoever challenges you and your ideas has got to be a hater, right? Because it's you. They're challenging. They're hating you because they disagree with you. It's a difficulty if you're trying to communicate with people who take everything as a matter of hate when in fact you're trying to discuss an idea or something that would be good for all of us. And then one more thing, the burden of truth. Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Now this is God speaking to Ezekiel, telling him what his job as a prophet was. But there is a sense in which we all have this responsibility. If you're hungry, and everybody around you is hungry, and you know where the bread is, and you sneak out at night and get some for yourself, but don't tell anybody, is that love? It's a form of dishonesty. You're cheating them of the opportunity. Just because it's been shown to you, it's not just for your benefit. Some of you remember Y2K. What does that mean anymore? I forgot. <laughs> the turn of the century. Y2K. Well, there was a lot of interest by for stockpiling in those days. Where at the, that year we were living on an island, and quite a few people, including some of the church, thought we ought to convert the church into a storehouse for food and water, so that when things all went belly up and the world got confused and everything like that and collapsed, we would have enough. And so my question then is, okay. If that really happens, what are you going to do when your neighbors are hungry and dying of thirst? Well, get a gun. Right. That's really all you can do if you're going to stockpile against the hard times. But the same is true spiritually. You've got an answer, maybe even experienced. A relationship with God that has lifted a burden took you from darkness into light. It's the truth, and you know it's the truth because you know it even personally. So are you stockpiling this information for yourself? And are you arming yourself to keep anybody from getting in your church and finding out what you're talking about or hearing this good news? Now, this is mine. I think I'm going to form a colony and we'll have armed guards around us who are the people of the good news we're not going to share any of this we're special special god has made us the chosen people that is crooked living because the one who gave us the news gave us with the specific command to share it with other people, that he's channeling through us information that everybody needs. His love, his light, the truth, the gospel truth. 
Briefly, let's uh, summarize these as takeaways, these five points. Honest living and honest communication has a way of permeating all of life like salt and light. I think that when we vote and when we engage politically and we engage in the society around us, if honesty and integrity are not the basis of the decisions we make, then we are dragging things down rather than being salt and light because this is simply God's character, the veracity of God. He's a truth lover, a light lover. Number two, Ethics 101, the burden of proof is on the accuser, not the accused. Well, that's just a way of saying that part about two or three witnesses. When somebody tells you something, hey, you want to know the real scoop on what's going on? Well, it's perfectly legitimate to say, do you mind if I check? Do you mind if I get some other witnesses for this? Because I'm not passing judgment just based on what you say when it's against somebody else. I'm going to follow Jesus on this one. Because the person accused cannot defend themselves. The burden of proof has to be on the person doing the accusing. You think somebody's done wrong? Back it up. That's all he's saying. Jesus said it. Courts of the Old Testament said it. Number three, silence might be golden, but sometimes it's just cowardice. Is there something you should be saying that you're not? Withholding the truth when it needs to be told is dishonesty. You got a friend or a family member who is digging a hole for themselves, spiritually or morally, and you know it, and you don't say anything, that's a form of dishonesty. We have an obligation to help each other with the truth when it needs to be said. But, number four, Honesty isn't the only virtue. Think grace, compassion, fairness as well. When our son Matt was about three or four, we were in a grocery store. And um, a hefty size guy was in line behind us. And Matt turned to him and said, Wow, you're a fat man. And we kind of snuck out. <laughs> Where'd this kid come from? <laughs> it's not ours. <laughs> he had no idea. That speaking the truth isn't always, isn't the only virtue. I don't know if you've noticed, but I have noticed that people who pride themselves in saying the truth even when it hurts somebody are the most sensitive when it comes to somebody doing that to them. Have you noticed that? Hey, you can't talk to me now. I'm really offended now because you said what? I would have said if I was in your shoes. Wow. That's pretty cool. There are other virtues. There are times to just keep your mouth shut. There are times to do it graciously. There are times to try to get behind the pulpit so you can say it from here. And then you can... No, I'm kidding here. There is a difference, by the way. It is a lot harder to look somebody in the eye, somebody you care about and tell them something that they don't want to hear than it is to do it from an objective position. That's difficult. The task is often a lot harder for people who don't have a platform like this. Although in a congregation this size, it becomes very personal to me. Uh, anything I say, I know I'm talking to people I know and I care about. And that would be a lot easier sometimes 
if that wasn't the case. You know, uh, you've heard the expression that before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. You know why that is, right? Because then when they get mad, you'll be a mile away already and have their shoes so they can't catch you. That's where that expression came from. Very practical. And number five, knowing firsthand the way, the truth, and the life is the key to living a boldly honest life. That's the way, the truth, and the life is Matthew or John 14 about Jesus. That's his name. One of the names, one of the ways that he could be called that. The truth, actual name for Jesus is the truth. In other words, honesty and integrity are so integral to who this is and what this is that we should be known for being people of integrity. People who can be trusted because he can be trusted to carry out what he said he'd do. Father, in uh, dealing with these various scriptures about truth and honesty, we understand that behind it all is your very nature. This is who you are. and You simply want it to be lived out in our lives as well. If there are things that we need to speak up about with people we care about, show us what those are and show us how. And Lord, if there are ways of sharing your love and gospel, the truth with people around us, and maybe we're the logical choice. Make us bold enough to be truth speakers. And Father, if there are things that we need to go back and correct about things we've said and done that were not right, put those things in our minds right now. We give them to you, and we want you to help us correct them. Thank you for being who you are, the way, the truth, and the life. We come to you, Jesus, with that in mind. Be real in us. Our relationship with you, based on Jesus, but our lives as well. Amen.